The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello. Clive Staples Lewis was better known to the world as C.S. Lewis, academic scholar, writer of fiction, and apologist for the Christian faith. He was known to his friends as Jack. Jack Lewis. He took that name for himself when he was four years old, when his beloved family dog, Jaxie, had been run over by a car. Clive Staples, who didn't love his own name all that much anyway, responded to death in a deep way. Jaxie is no more. I'll honor him. Please call me Jack from now on. The story has the seedlings of many things in C.S. Lewis's life. He loved animals. At a young age, he was writing stories about them, much in the vein of his favorite author, Beatrix Potter, who also wrote about talking animals in her Peter Rabbit stories. The story shows, too, that he was fascinated by words and language and naming things. How many kids rename themselves at age four? with a name that sticks for the rest of their life. He could feel things deeply, a deep empathy that sometimes surprised and overwhelmed him. He cared. And maybe this, most of all, he's just likable. You hear the story and think, well, this sounds like a neat little guy. I probably would have liked him. I'm reminded of something the New Yorker writer George W.S. Trow wrote. I encountered him late in his career when he was getting more and more bizarre. Nobody was writing like him in those days. He had always been eclectic, but now his cultural and media criticism was kind of out there, kind of gnomic, kind of prophetic. I found it enriching and entrancing. I didn't always follow what he was saying, and so I dove back to some of his earlier works, the context of no context, and I got to know this guy. It was sort of hard to pin down. But he talked about how things had changed from the 50s to the 80s and 90s, and what it all meant, and what we were doing to ourselves with television, and the way people thought, and what had been lost. He was gay, I think, but I don't think I knew it then, and he was anti-establishment, and a defender of cultural values, and appreciator of art, and so forth, and he talked about how he just liked Dwight Eisenhower. I was surprised by this. It seemed like he'd be someone who'd find Eisenhower to be part of the problem. A bland Republican, a status quo, a high priest of the establishment. Tro seemed like a 60s guy, a 70s guy. He wrote for the Lampoon. He seemed like someone who would thumb his nose at Eisenhower as a fuddy-duddy, a boring uncle. And he says, what can I say? I just like him. That's sort of how I feel about C.S. Lewis. I know his flaws. I'm not passionate about the strengths either. I don't look to him to bolster arguments, as some Christians might. I don't read the Narnia books every year in tribute to my youth. I don't find the screw tape letters to be as enjoyable as some do. But when I read the stuff he writes, I'm drawn in. I like his voice. I like his humility, his humor, his sense of fun. He has the kind of curiosity and spirit of adventure that I find appealing, and I find myself attracted to his puzzles and problems, even if they weren't ones that I had before I opened the book. I don't mind going along for the ride with C.S. Lewis, even if he's wrestling with something I'm not, 
because I believe him to be sincere, and I admire how he'll admit when he's wrong, or when there's a hole in his argument that he can't cover, or when he's asking the reader to buy something that might be hard to buy. He's from a different era, and he's from a different country, and he's of a different religion, and all those things were important, and there's really no reason why I should feel a kind of simpatico with C.S. Lewis, and yet, there it is. What can I say? I just like him. Now, C.S. Lewis is one of those writers who have many different sides. There are many different C.S. Lewises, which means that people can learn about him in different ways. There might be some who first learn about him as an inkling, maybe because they know his famous friend J.R.R. Tolkien, and they've heard of the Society of the Inklings who used to meet at an Oxford pub to discuss literature and linguistics and philosophy and religion and academia and writing and life. There might be some who know Lewis, in the first instance, as an academic, and this leads them into the world of Lewis as a Christian apologist and a children's author. Maybe that comes next. Some might come to Lewis from a different direction. Maybe they first know him as a Christian author, especially in America. Christianity Today magazine asked more than 100 Christian writers and leaders to rank the most influential religious books of the 20th century. And those people chose Lewis's Mere Christianity as the number one book by far. Some may know his Screwtape Letters, a clever work in which a demon teaches his apprentice how to tempt a human soul. Some may know Lewis for his life story, especially through the movie Shadowlands, which tells a somewhat fictionalized story of his second marriage. The American who was married to a cheating husband who came to Christianity through Lewis's works. She came to England. They became friends. He married her in a secret ceremony in order to permit her to stay. She was soon after diagnosed with cancer. He, this is the character C.S. Lewis played by Anthony Hopkins. He then fell in love and wrote about it. They got married and he wrote about that. She died and he wrote about that. Some may have first encountered Lewis that way, as a grief observed and surprised by joy, or works that people put in the hands of those who are struggling and searching. And Lewis's life story becomes their model and their salve. There are many C.S. Lewis's People come to him from different directions. Now, to be clear, not everyone is a fan of Mr. Lewis. Some are put off by him. They think he's hectoring. They think he's a bully. They think he's immature. They think he's overrated. We'll touch on some of that, too. They think he's like so many of his time, infected with ideas we would today find sexist and racist. But in addition to those who knew him as a scholar or the larger group who knew him first as a Christian author, there are some and... I suspect this is the largest group of all who discovered C.S. Lewis as a children's author first. And only then did we learn that there was this whole other side to him, this adult grown-up side, which seemed fascinating. He what? Wrote science fiction? And essays and books about Christianity? This author of these Narnia books, he was a professor who hung around the guy who wrote The Hobbit? What? What? Spoke on the radio during the war? That's him? Same guy? Same guy who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Yes, it was. All that was fascinating to learn about for those of us who read book after book with C.S. Lewis on the front cover, holding the paperbacks in our little hands. We had more to learn about Mr. Lewis, but it was Narnia that was the entree, as magical to enter through as that famous wardrobe. A whole world opened up behind it, 
J.K. Rowling knew what that was, how powerful that was. She said she had the wardrobe in mind. When Harry is told, he has to hurl himself at a barrier at King's Cross Station. The Narnia books are special. And so was the man behind them. C.S. Lewis, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. We're still in a pandemic here in the United States. Well, I guess that's true everywhere. We're still under quarantine is how I should put it. It's lifting, but gradually I think there's still a lot of disease out there and caution is warranted. I hope you are all safe and sound wherever you are and whenever you're listening. We've got a great one today, C.S. Lewis. People have been asking me for more children's literature and young adult literature, and I guess we dabble in that a little. We haven't done a whole lot on it. We could do more. C.S. Lewis is a good place to start. Beatrix Potter, his hero, one of his heroes, would be another. Madeline Langle would be another. Harry Potter, of course, and, well, there are plenty. Grimm's Fairy Tales would be another good one. World Folklore. So many episodes on the list. I don't think we'll be running out of episode ideas anytime soon. So here's how the show looks today. We've got a couple of emails, then the life of C.S. Lewis, everything but the Narnia books. Then we'll do our final segment just on Narnia. So let's get to it. Oh, excuse me. There's someone knocking at the door here at the Jack Wilson studio. Hello. Hello. I'm Oliver Twist. Oliver. Gruel, please, sir. That's all I'm asking for. And guess who's been doling out the gruel here at the workhouse? Who? Why, it's that insufferable drudge, Mr. Jack Wilson. Oh, Oliver. Ah, uh, I guess he ain't a bad sort when he's not jawing my ear off about some chap named Dickens. Oh. I couldn't care less about meeting some old writer fellow, <laughs> but I would like some more gruel. Of course Might you, you would. throw a few shillings at Mr. Wilson so he can spare another spoonful of slop for me and the other lads? We'll consider ourselves grateful. Oh, Oliver, thank you for joining us today. And for your reminder of helping to support the show, which is a good one. For those of you who would like to help, please do head on over to patreon.com slash literature or historyofliterature.com slash shop. At the Patreon account, you can sign up for a small monthly donation. At the shop, you can buy mugs and tote bags or a virtual coffee, which is much appreciated, as is becoming a patron if you choose to do that. Like this week's new patrons, Michelle, Chris, Alexandra, Nicole, and Roger. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you. Your support is an honor and truly does help to keep things rolling along here at the Jack Wilson Studios. Those fabulous five have signed up to give a small monthly donation and to receive some occasional bonus content from yours truly. Okay, let's hear some emails. Here's one from Chris. Dear Jack, I was searching for a podcast on George Eliot in support of a family book club selection. Silas Marner. When moments later... <laughs> this is a great family, by the way. <laughs> a family book club selection. Silas Marner. Oh, what a great family. When moments later, 
I was freezing in the back of a truck with another seasoned traveler bouncing down a road in Mongolia and sharing a bottle of brandy whilst discussing Middlemarch. I was hooked and wanted more. I searched through the titles of the History of Literature podcast and felt like Tuco racing through the wooden grave markers in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, realizing I, too, had discovered an ecstasy of gold. Since then, I have been savoring your podcasts, wanting the series to last forever, like binging Breaking Bad. Oh, boy. I know that. I've gone through that twice. After college, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. That's in quotes. I joined the Navy and became a pilot. Books became my solitary escape within the jam-packed confines of a warship. While underway, I read until the early hours of the morning, ensconced in my bunk, escaping the multitudes, monotony, and perils of life at sea and air. I read Moby Dick, cruising across the Pacific Ocean, and wondered if the Leviathan still lurked in the dark waters below, in the same sea where Ahab flung his sextant upon the deck of the Pequod. My days of adventure are over. Like Bilbo, I have returned home and live comfortably in the Shire. I have three grown daughters now, and years ago I started a family book club to share my love of literature with them. In my younger days, I walked alone with the likes of Nostromo, Raskolnikov, and the Whiskey Priest. Now my daughters and I are sharing tales about Countess Ellen Olenska, Madame Bovary, and Silas Marner. The journey continues and is fun to share. And that is how this rambling email started, in search of a podcast on George Eliot. Thank you for your excellent podcast on literature. I love it. Each night after I put my book down, I listen to another edition. It has been a great respite during our current predicament. Shangri-La through great books and your podcast. You are an inspiration, Jack. Thank you. Chris, grounded ashore in Jacksonville, Florida. P.S. I just listened to your podcast on Melville. I am going to Mystic. Now, <laughs> I love that P.S. I thought his days of adventure were over. He's Bilbo, living comfortably in the Shire, and instead, he's inspired to go to Mystic and join up with our super fan, super friend, Christina. Maybe uh, on board the, the Charles Morgan Oh, that was a good episode. Well, Chris, thank you so much for the message. I'm very glad to hear that you and your daughters are enjoying literature and that you've discovered the podcast. George Eliot was a very popular episode, number one in all of 2019. In fact, recently posted the top 10 list on Twitter and Facebook. You can see the top 10 if you check that out. You stumbled across a good one. In other words, or maybe I should say... You were not alone in seeking her out, which is wonderful, because she is so good. I love hearing from listeners and where they are, and I love hearing from power readers like yourself, who are squeezing the juice out of life, living it to its fullest, and who include reading and reading great literature in that equation. That's part of life. That's part of living life to its fullest, in my opinion. And who retreat to the Shire with a book on your lap which is also very good. Welcome aboard. Here's another one from a listener in a far-flung place, or at least, what does that mean? If the flinging is at the starting point where I am, I guess, it's probably not so far-flung if you start from where he is. I'm the far-flung one. Is that how this works? You can never be far-flung? 
You can only far fling? I don't think so. I've felt far flung at times, so maybe that's not how it works. When I was in Tibet, I felt very, very far flung. Both very far and very flung. Okay, here we go. Dear sir, I'm Tufik from Syria. To put things straight, I have a bachelor's in English literature and have always been interested in English poetry. John Keats is my favorite, and since I can't get enough feedback or commentary that will satiate my appetite about his work, I decided to give some podcasts a shot. Sir, I have never been more literary satisfied, if I may say so, than when I was listening to your podcast about Keats, part one. Your approach was brilliant, and actually these ideas you highlighted were always there in my mind, but never got the chance to discuss with anyone else. I am here just to say a simple thank you. I do appreciate what you did and the time spent doing it. From Syria, with gratitude and love. Thank you, Tufik. Tufik, I'm very glad to hear from you. I agree that the Keats, or that Keats, is just about as good as it gets. I'm always glad when I hit on one of your favorites, your favorite poets, and don't let you down. That's not easy. Often the specialists are the toughest audiences. So I'm glad you enjoyed the Keats part one, and I hope you also enjoyed the second part of our look at John Keats. They were both very fun to do. Best wishes to you in Syria, and thank you for checking in. And finally, subject, Jack Wilson's World. Short intro. I was quarantined with my elderly parents to help them. After a month, I had to leave for an unavoidable, undelayable work commitment. I can't go back to them. I fear bringing the virus in the house. I do not want to go to the city where my apartment is, a hot spot. So I'm in a chilly little beach cottage with time, and I am on a Flannery O'Connor kick. So I googled podcasts with Flannery, and yours came up, and I listened, and I was gripped. Richard Stern. The emphasis on the end of the short story, the weaving of your life into it all. I thought, when, when the heck is he going to get to it? You're not the first. And it was over, and I was so completely satisfied with the experience. I'm sorry. Mesmerized was I. And that was three days ago. Since then, I finished the promotion in one sitting, and what an ending! I have the race ready to go, and I am listening to your episodes with a pen and notebook to capture some of the deep and or hilarious lines. Your content, perspective, language, experience, delivery, it's fantastic. I'm laughing out loud often. I'm saying, holy shit, that's me. All over episode 7A. Are you expensive? I was too unobservant to be observant. That's what Marcel was doing when he was sitting in the corner. Wow. I'm so excited there are so many more episodes and the race in front of me. Questions. Are you still planning on that second Flannery O'Connor episode where you tackle the ugly side of her racial attitudes and sort out a place to land? I'm interested as I need to work that out. Two, I think you'd love Charles Portis. Am I correct? Can you do an episode on him? Three, what about combining Walker Percy and Confederacy of Dunces since he discovered it and he's got some good stuff on his own? Four, thank you for doing this. I learn, I laugh, I identify, which makes me feel better about certain things. And at the same time, your valuable and fruitful efforts make me want to do more than just be too observant to do anything but observe. All the best to you, kind sir. Mike. Okay, Mike. 
Thank you for the email. I'm so glad to hear I have a doppelganger listener out there who is finding some of our episodes in the archive and taking some pleasure in them. So, your questions in order. Flannery O'Connor Part 2 is still in the works, although it probably won't be a, a little while. It'll be at least a little while till I get it out there since I just did a three-parter on James Baldwin and William Faulkner. I want to spread things around a little bit. Head to some other geographic areas other than just the American South. I still love Flannery O'Connor, although if you heard those three episodes about Faulkner and Baldwin, you'll see how I'm reading her these days. Not a cancellation, but more of a sharp-eyed curiosity, a sharp critical eye. Looking for something with these Southern writers. I'm looking for what they reveal, what they conceal, what they bury to see how they're dealing with the central hypocrisy of their position, which I believe was known to them. It's one that all Americans could face, need to face, and not all of them do. And in the South and the Southern literature of the 20th century, it might be at its most pronounced. It's very dramatic, interesting stuff. And it tells us where we've been as a country, and where we are now, and where we might hope to go. So... Maybe I'll have one of her episodes again soon. Number two, Charles Portis. Yes, I'm a fan. No plans to do an episode on him, but I will put him on the list of requests. Number three, Percy and Dunces. All right, that's not a bad idea. I love that story. I think Mike and I have talked about it a couple of times. Once was in the One Hit Wonders episode, if I'm recalling correctly. Another one might have been great comic writing or something, I think. I think that's come up before. Didn't we do one there? I'll have to check my notes. Well, first I'll have to take some notes, then I'll have to check them. Mike, thank you for the email and welcome to the show. Okay, there's some music telling me it's time to take a break. Let's take a quick break and come back with the life of Clive Staples Lewis, a.k.a. C.S. Lewis, or to his friends, Jack, named after his beloved dog, Jaxi. Coming up after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. (laughs) 
Clive Staples Lewis was born in 1898 in Belfast, Ireland, which is now Northern Ireland. His father was a lawyer. His mother was a mathematician. They valued books in their house and learning, and Jack showed early promise. His mother died when Jack was 10, and Jack was bitter. He'd been praying for her, and it hadn't helped. He turned away from religion, and it didn't help when he was sent off to boarding school, religious boarding school, and he hated it, hated being there, and hated the religious exercises they made him do. By the time he grew up and went off to World War I as a young man, he was an atheist. An interesting thing about Lewis is that he ultimately succeeded in many areas of literature, an essayist, a fiction writer, a playwright, a scholar, a philosopher. He gave radio speeches that were extremely successful, and he was a great conversationalist. And yet, the one area where he didn't succeed was poetry, which had been his burning desire since the age of 15. We'll talk about that more later. Instead, let's talk about the successes. He went to Oxford after the war and did astonishingly well, getting a degree with the highest of honors in both classics and philosophy. He found the question of God to be one that wouldn't let him go. We are in 1922 now, and he was making friends, scholars and literature buffs like himself, but also theologians and Christians. These are all the same people, I mean. They all have these interests in their mind. Owen Barfield, Hugo Dyson, Charles Williams, and of course, famously, J.R.R. Tolkien. Did I say Tolkien before? (laughs) It's an old habit. That's how I grew up pronouncing his name. I believe it's Tolkien. Lewis later said about his friendship with Tolkien, quote, It marked the breakdown of two old prejudices. At my first coming into the world, I had been implicitly warned never to trust a papist. And at my first coming into the English faculty, explicitly warned never to trust a philologist. Tolkien was both. End quote. That's the kind of thing I love about Lewis, that humor, that smartness, that turn of a sentence. When he wrote science fiction, he wrote a science fiction trilogy that was pretty well received, and some people still like it, actually. I've never read it myself, and my understanding is it's a bit dated, like most science fiction written in the 1930s. It's probably less dated than some books of that era would be, since it doesn't focus on the science or the action so much as the application of humanity to society which is a little more timeless than books that speculate about moon people and Martians and so on. But here's what I wanted to mention. In that book, one of those books, he criticized H.G. Wells, and then he wrote his book with its obvious debt to H.G. Wells, and he said at the front, quote, certain slighting references to earlier stories of this type, which will be found in the following pages, have been put there for purely dramatic purposes. The author would be sorry if any reader supposed he was too stupid to have enjoyed Mr. H.G. Wells' fantasies, or too ungrateful to acknowledge his debt to them. End quote. This is Lewis in a nutshell. The critic says, yes, I have to be honest, that I do not like Wells and his stories, and here's why. He does this wrong and that wrong and this wrong and that wrong. That's the critic. And then the human comes in and says, but hey, I get it. He writes a good story, and I've copied him in a lot of ways, too. And along with that being with being that necktie-wearing guy who's smart enough to criticize, I'm also a guy who likes a good story, and I'm modest and self-aware enough to see this contradiction in myself. This is the Lewisian attitude, which makes him so easy to read, whether it's literary criticism or, indeed, his writings about Christianity. Others may find him hectoring or a bully. 
I find him much more fascinating and readable than that. I feel like he looks at this problem, at these things, at the concerns of his, the way I would if I were much smarter and more eloquent, and if I were starting in the position that he does, which is a position of faith. He's trying to explain Christianity from the position of someone who believes in God and believes in Jesus, and yet sees all the difficulties in explaining certain aspects of the religion or the theology or the church. And his project seems to be to explain as much of it as he can, to note the places where he can't, to figure out what to do about those, and to let us know what assumptions we need to make to start from the place where he's starting. And to ask the question, what is being asked of the Christian intellectually? What is he willing to accept And what does that mean? It's a journey I can appreciate, even if it's not one that I'm on. I like reading about marathon runners, too, or climbers of Mount Everest, or those who set out to cross the Atlantic in a sailboat. It tells me about all those things. It makes me wonder if I have it in me to do what they're doing. And I learn from the vicarious journey, even if my own journey is a different one. We jumped ahead a little bit in the story of Lewis's life, but not by much. It was Tolkien and his fellow linguists and literary scholars who guided Lewis into his Christianity. He later described the passage as him being reluctant. Quote, the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. That's how he put it. Drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. End quote. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, says Lewis's gift as a writer about Christianity was not as a debater or a successful academic theologian, but, quote, in what you might call pastoral theology, as an interpreter of people's moral and spiritual crises, as somebody who is a brilliant diagnostician of self-deception, and somebody who, in his own book on bereavement after his wife's death, really pushes the envelope, giving permission, I suppose— to people to articulate their anger and resentment about a God who apparently takes your loved ones away from you. End quote. This might be part of Lewis's weakness, like Graham Greene, but it's also part of his appeal. He was extremely well-read, but not exactly a scholar. He didn't read scholarly texts, was a criticism that other scholars made of Lewis. He read the books that a smart person might have on his or her shelf, He tried to understand things the way you or I might try to understand them. After that, his life was pretty set, most of it in Oxford, then a decade or so in Cambridge. He was known for dressing shabby, maybe like a butcher, a prosperous butcher, it was said, and his jolly, red, honest face. Known for speaking in a booming voice with tremendous gusto. He was witty and learned and honest and seeking and he was popular and well-regarded. He had a wide circle of friends, and also some people he alienated with his passion for honesty and his penchant for getting at the truth as he saw it, even if that meant stepping on toes from time to time. So there he was in the leafy confines of the university setting in the middle of the 20th century, writing his books, engaging in debates, digging deep in himself to try to understand his attraction to God, in spite of evidence to the contrary, or maybe I shouldn't say evidence, but questions to the contrary. If God is good and God is powerful, why are people unhappy? Why doesn't God make everyone happy? Is he not actually powerful and cannot do it? Or does he just not care? 
Those are the kind of questions he asked because he knew there were questions that he had, but also the questions that others had, others who were coming to Christianity. He was trying to answer them. For him, the answer was in God and it was in Jesus, but he was a searching enough person to wonder if he could get answers, if he could find peace, if he could find value in human relationships too, in values like friendship and community and love. Speaking of love, he had two loves, both of it which were unusual and dramatic. When he was in the army, he shared a room with a cadet named Patty Moore. The two made a pact that if either died, the one who survived would take care of the other's family. Patty was killed in action. Lewis kept his promise. He went to take care of Patty's sister, Maureen, and his mother, Jane Moore, and he ended up being quite devoted to Jane. For years, he lived with the Moores. She was 27 years older than him. Jane was. He introduced her to others as his mother, and yet there was some speculation that the two had a romantic relationship, too. I think it's still not quite positive, not quite known, although most people now seem to think that they were. They base this on interviews with Jane's daughter and the, the position of their rooms, where they lived. In any event, this was how he spent decades. She eventually succumbed to dementia and had to live in a nursing home, and he went to visit her every day until she died. That was in 1951. By the 1950s, Lewis was famous already and getting more famous. The Screwtape Letters had been a bestseller, and his radio speeches on Christianity during World War II were a great comfort to many who were in need of comfort during that awful period. He originally wanted to serve in the war, hoping to at least be able to train the troops, even if he himself were getting a little too, was getting a little too old to be a soldier. But in the end, I think he helped the cause to a greater extent than he might have had he been accepted in that capacity as a trainer. He'd written something like 30 books by now, including his space trilogy and his scholarly works. He was astonishingly prolific. He wrote a lot on allegory in the later Middle Ages in his scholarship, and his Narnia books were coming out, and his book Miracles and Mere Christianity and many others as well. He was also a helpful hand to the Lord of the Rings books, offering advice and commentary to his friend Tolkien. I think I'll have more about that in another episode. We'll do one on Tolkien and maybe one on the Inklings. Maybe we'll combine the two. In 1955, Lewis published his famous memoir, Surprised by Joy. He had met Joy Davidman Gresham, the American writer who was born Jewish and who was a former communist and who converted to Christianity. She came to England with her two sons, and she and Lewis became friends. He married her in a civil ceremony so she could stay in the UK, and they had a strong connection. She had a lively mind, one of the few people he'd met who could keep up with his mind, and she made him laugh. Six months after they married, she was diagnosed with cancer. They eventually got married in a Christian ceremony, which was not easy in the Anglican church of the time, thanks to her divorce. But Lewis, perhaps, as kind of a super-Christian, famous Christian, he had earned the right to an exception, maybe, I guess you could say, and a friend married them. That was in 1957. Three years later, she died. He then wrote a book called A Grief Observed, which was a book so raw he originally published it under a pseudonym to keep, to keep people from knowing that he was the one who had written it. 
but this meant that a lot of his friends recommended the book to him to help him deal with his own grief. Imagine that. Here, this will help. You might like this guy. This guy's going through something similar to what you are. You're not alone. Lewis, of course, maybe felt like he was all the more alone, that the only book that was being recommended to him was the one that he had written. He had this to say about Joy, quote, She was my daughter and my mother, my pupil and my teacher, my subject and my sovereign, and always, holding all these in solution, my trusty comrade, friend, shipmate, fellow soldier, my mistress, but at the same time all that any man, friend, and I have had good ones, has ever been to me, perhaps more. End quote. In the end, he himself was diagnosed with a serious illness about a year after Joy died, and then died two years after the diagnosis. His death went almost unremarked, perhaps because he died on the same day as another famous person, the author Aldous Huxley. Oh, and one other guy who also died that day. It was November 22nd, 1963, and President John F. Kennedy had also died. There are only so many headlines to go around. But that's not the whole story. The truth was, his fame was waning at that moment as well. He had he has lived on, however. His Christian writings have endured. His friendship with Tolkien, his marriage to Joy, was the subject of the successful play and a successful movie that we talked about earlier, Shadowlands. But above all, his Narnia books made him something like a household name, at least in my household in the 1970s and 80s. Lewis, Madeline Langle, Beverly Cleary, and Judy Bloom. those were hard to escape for kids who loved books in those decades. And his fame continues. He was given a plaque in Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey, which is a little ironic if you remember what I talked about earlier, given his failure at poetry and his hatred for it. Maybe I didn't tell you about that part. I said he hated poets, hated T.S. Eliot, hated Louis McNeese, didn't seem to get modern poetry at all. His biographer, Ian Wilson, says Lewis, quote, hated all poets because he was a failed poet. There's a very bad poem, he puts poem in quotes, there's a very bad poem by Lewis about reading the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and it just shows how stupid he was about modern poetry, end quote. But Lewis is deserving of his spot in Poet's Corner and all his other honors as a writer. Very few people wrote as well, as successfully, in such a variety of contexts. Which brings me to the big thing we haven't really covered yet, and those are his children's books, in particular the Chronicles of Narnia. I've saved those for their own special section, which we will do after this quick break. Let's get the bad out of the way first, the negative. Not everyone loves the Narnia books. J.R.R. Tolkien himself thought they missed the mark, incoherent and sentimental and unsatisfactory. That's his friend, Lewis's friend, his pal, reading them. And it gets worse. A.S. Byatt hated them even as a child, calling them Christian arm-twisting. She met Lewis 
And although she admired his work as a critic, she found him to be personally kind of difficult to admire. She thought he was sheltered, a clever schoolboy who'd never grown up. And that makes me cringe when I hear that, because you can kind of see how that would happen. The boy who does well at school, so well they make him a professor. He'd been a soldier and so on, but he was maybe like an athlete or a celebrity who ends up with a lot of people taking care of him, admiring him. And he maybe doesn't know what it's like to struggle for money or change diapers and so on. And for today's reader, the books have some rough patches. They are tinged with sexism and racism, I can't deny it, and apparently this is true of other Lewis books as well. I don't remember it in Narnia, but I'm not surprised to hear it. So many books I enjoyed in the 70s and 80s turned out to bear the prejudices of their authors who were writing then and in the decades and centuries before. Philip Pullman, author of the His Dark Materials trilogy, calls the Narnia books wicked. He objects to Lewis's religious writings as bullying, hectoring, and dishonest in all kinds of ways. And the Narnia books for him are dodgy and unpleasant, dodgy in the dishonest rhetoric way, and unpleasant because they seem to embody a worldview that takes for granted things like racism, misogyny, and a profound cultural conservatism that is utterly unexamined. Examples are scorn being poured on little girls with fat legs. Another example is a girl who uses lipstick is essentially denied heaven, a sort of slut-shaming, I think. I guess that's the accusation. The racism I've read about is that the villainous group of people have darker skin and talk like someone doing a parody of the Arabian Nights. Even setting this aside, and I'm not telling you whether to read the Narnia books today. Certainly the Pullman books are much loved. Harry Potter is there. There's so much to read. Maybe Narnia isn't for you or your kids. I don't know. I'm only going to talk about the impact that those books had on me. There's a writer for The Guardian who said the phrase, quote, Aslan is on the move, end quote, can still make the hair stand up on his neck, and that's the same for me. And it's a recollection of how important these books were to me as a young reader. That's what I want to talk about. Not whether the books are good, but how powerful they were when I was 9, 10, and 11. How does that happen? How did Lewis do it? And what did it do for me? He said this about writing for children. Quote, I think there are three ways in which those who write for children may approach their work. Two good ways, and one that is generally a bad way. I came to know of the bad way quite recently, and from two unconscious witnesses. One was a lady who sent me the manuscript of a story she had written, in which a fairy placed at a child's disposal a wonderful gadget. I say gadget, because it was not a magic ring or hat or cloak or any such traditional matter. It was a machine, a thing of taps and handles and buttons you could press. You could press one and get an ice cream, another and get a live puppy, and so forth. I had to tell the author honestly that I didn't much care for that sort of thing. She replied, No more do I. It bores me to distraction. But it is what the modern child wants. My other bit of evidence was this. In my own first story, I had described at length what I thought a rather fine high tea given by a hospitable fawn to the little girl who was my heroine. A man who has children of his own said, Ah, I see how you got to that. If you want to please grown-up readers, you give them sex. So you thought to yourself, That won't do for children. What shall I give them instead? I know. The little blighters like plenty of good eating. 
In reality, however, I myself like eating and drinking. I put in what I would have liked to read when I was a child, and what I still like reading now that I am in my fifties. The lady in my first example and the married man in my second both conceived writing for children as a special department of giving the public what it wants. Children are, of course, a special public, and you find out what they want and give them that, however little you like it yourself. So that's, end quote. So that's the bad way. You think about children in the abstract and try to find something you know that will please them. I'm trying to sell books. If you've heard the expression, a dumb person's idea of a smart person, you know how this goes. It won't go well. You can't say, oh, I hate this, but children will love it because I know what they want. You have to like it yourself or actually know someone who will. The good way, or one of the good ways, is that you have a particular child in mind. Lewis Carroll did this, writing for Alice. Tolkien did this, writing for his own kids. You're not trying to generalize what children know or what the public will like. You know the child. You know what they like. You deliver it, and others respond. Or, as Lewis puts it, quote, There is no question of children conceived as a strange species whose habits you have made up like an anthropologist or a commercial traveler, nor, I suspect, would it be possible, thus face to face, to regale the child with things calculated to please it, but regarded by yourself with indifference or contempt. The child, I am certain, would see through that. In any personal relation, the two participants modify each other. You would become slightly different because you were talking to a child, and the child would become slightly different because it was being talked to by an adult. A community, a composite personality, is created, and out of that the story grows. The third way, which is the other good way, is the one Lewis himself does, according to him. Quote, The third way, which is the only one I could ever use myself, consists in writing a children's story because a children's story is the best art form for something you have to say, just as a composer might write a dead march, not because there was a public funeral in view, but because certain musical ideas that had occurred to him went best into that form. Where the children's story is simply the right form for what the author has to say, then of course readers who want to hear that will read the story or reread it at any age. I am almost inclined to set it up as a canon that a children's story which is enjoyed only by children is a bad children's story. The good ones last. A waltz which you can like only when you are waltzing is a bad waltz. Two more, end quote. Two more points from this essay. The first is that he talks about what it means to be a child and what it means to be an adult and how we make a mistake of thinking that growth means setting things aside in order to move into higher things. He uses fairy tales as an example. He liked fairy tales as a child. He likes them now, since he's being honest with himself, and he regrets that he ever would have felt like he couldn't like them because they were quote-unquote childish. Quote, The modern view seems to me to involve a false conception of growth. They accuse us of arrested development because we have not lost a taste we had in childhood. But surely... Arrested development consists not in refusing to lose old things, but in failing to add new things. I now like hock, that's a name for a kind of wine. I now like hock, which I am sure I would should not have liked as a child, but I still like lemon squash. I call this growth or development because I have been enriched. Where I formerly had only one pleasure, I now have two, 
But if I had to lose the taste for lemon squash before I acquired the taste for hock, that would not be growth, but simple change. I now enjoy Tolstoy and Jane Austen and Trollope, as well as fairy tales, and I call that growth. If I had had to lose the fairy tales in order to acquire the novelists, I would not say that I had grown, but only that I had changed. End quote. And the last point I want to make is that although he's a Christian to his core, a searching Christian, one who wants to share, one who wants his life and his work to be invested in it, here's a quote by him, quote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else, end quote. This is a guy you might expect to get kind of preachy, right? Might expect him to think, I'll write a book to evangelize, to make kids more moral, maybe even to make them Christian. And yet, I never read the Narnia books that way. Others might. They might have that effect. But I never read them that way as a child, and I'm not sure if I would view them that way now. I viewed them as a story, and I was steeped in the Christian story as well. I went to church every Sunday, went to Sunday school every Sunday. On Good Friday, our house would have the curtains half pulled and the dim inside the dim living room my mom would play a set of records that she had of the story of Jesus's final days the last supper the betrayal the crown of thorns the denial all of it dramatized that story is so powerful the greatest story ever told as the record said and it might be If it's true, it definitely is. What could be better? Even if it's not true, it's a very good story. God creates humans who are sinners and sends his son, his only son, down to save them. And the son is beaten and abused and just takes it all and does it all for his love of humanity. Come on. He dies and is resurrected. He loves the poor, the meek, the sinners. The afflicted, it is a hell of a story, or a heaven of a story, maybe I should say, a heavenly story. And how I read Narnia, how I read it when I was 10 or 11 or so, I mean, when Aslan comes out, is that it resonated with me for the same reason that the story of Jesus did. The witch is so insidious, so terrifying. The power she has to tempt others is so chilling. It truly did scare the hell out of me. And Aslan is so good and warm and peaceful and strong. I'm working from memory here, so if I get some details wrong, please forgive me. But I'm remembering the feeling I had even then that it was not, well, well, wait. I have a quote here from Lewis that's going to set this up. Quote, I rejected any approach which begins with the question, what do modern children like? I might be asked, do you equally reject the approach which begins with the question, what do modern children need? In other words, with the moral or didactic approach? I think the answer is yes. Not because I don't like stories to have a moral. Certainly not because I think children dislike a moral. Rather because I feel sure that the question, what do modern children need, will not lead you to a good moral. If we ask that question, we are assuming too superior an attitude. It would be better to ask, what moral do I need? For I think we can be sure that what does not concern us deeply will not deeply interest our readers, whatever their age. 
but it is better not to ask the question at all. Let the pictures tell you their own moral, for the moral inherent in them will rise from whatever spiritual roots you have succeeded in striking during the whole course of your life. But if they don't show you any moral, don't put one in. For the moral you put in is likely to be a platitude, or even a falsehood, skimmed from the surface of your consciousness. It is impertinent to offer the children that. For we have been told on high authority that in the moral sphere they are probably at least as wise as we. Anyone who can write a children's story without a moral had better do so. That is, if he is going to write children's stories at all. The only moral that is of any value is that which arises inevitably from the whole cast of the author's mind. Indeed, everything in the story should arise from the whole cast of the author's mind. We must write for children out of those elements in our own imagination which we share with children, differing from our child readers not by any less or less serious interest in the things we handle, but by the fact that we have other interests which children would not share with us. The matter of our story should be a part of the habitual furniture of our minds. End quote. The habitual furniture of our minds. That's what's so beautiful. That's how I read these stories. Maybe they strengthened my belief in God or Jesus, or maybe my desire to believe. But it was operating on a much more fundamental level than that, the level not of intellectual symbol pairing or pairing up. This means... That, this correlates to that. Now I know what I'm supposed to have learned. X in this story means Y in this other story. No, just tapping into the feelings of how that story works on me as a person, not as a Christian or a would-be Christian, but as a human being. Story works on all of us. Themes, emotions, deep and elemental themes like feeling safe and feeling pity and feeling shock and feeling fear, and feeling terrible sadness, and the feeling of being unworthy, and feeling joy, and feeling love. It's all there. I have no idea if I read the Narnia books today if I'd feel any of that. Maybe I'm too old. Maybe I'm too jaded. Maybe I have to stick to my Chekhov. But I know that I felt it when I was a kid because I can remember the feeling. I remember going to the school library and checking out these books, walking across that creaky floor, that old school, walking home with those books in my bag as the sun was already setting because it was winter and it got dark after school, and knowing that ahead of me was a hot meal and then a warm bed with covers pulled up and a lamp casting its yellow glow across my room, and the pages would be there and I would be transported the great brain books transported me, filled me with delight, entertained me. But the Narnia books, my God, it was like the first time I felt fully human, with all the richness of emotions. And I had never been to a funeral, and those terrified me. When my grandfather had a heart attack and they pulled me out of school in the middle of the day to go to the hospital, I prayed and prayed that he would not die. I prayed and prayed, let him live. I'm not ready for this. I can't handle it. And he did live. I did not know how to deal with death. A hamster dying put me into shock. What would a loved one do to me? And I had never been in love, had never been a father with a child, had never held a baby in my arms, had never held a job 
I had so much life already under my belt. I knew so many things and had met so many people and already had so much figured out when I was 9 and 10 and 11. And yet, I had a whole big canvas yet to fill. I'd been in one little corner of it, painting away in a corner. And the rest of the canvas, a whole lifetime, was yet unpainted. And here's C.S. Lewis with these magical books who said, Here you go. I can make you feel even more. It might be a little scary how much you'll feel when you read these books. But it's okay, young Jack Wilson. You'll grow into these emotions, and you will learn to embrace these experiences. Because look at this canvas. Stand here on this canvas, this great giant canvas that spreads out before you, the canvas we all have, and we're tiny and can stand on it. Now, turn this way back at this corner and look at what you've done. See the little corner? That's your life so far. You have this little corner that you've painted with these bright colors. You've done your best. You've done a great job. Now, turn this way. Turn your back to the little corner. See that whole empty space? That whole blank, white, empty canvas? That's going to be the rest of your life. That's going to be filled in, too. And it's up to you whether you use the richest colors you can find, running and jumping and exploring and painting with majestic strokes, finding the magic combinations that will turn this vast emptiness into something wondrous and beautiful, sweeping and intricate. Or you could just blankly fill it in, not thinking, just dragging your feet across it, and making your painting ugly and dull and lifeless, a smear, a smudge. Those are your choices, Jack Wilson. You've read the Narnia books. Now go paint. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to C.S. Lewis for his diligence and his energy and for reading as much as he did and thinking as much as he did and delivering as much good content as he did. A great spirit. May he rest in peace, along with Little Richard and Fred Willard and all these other 20th century icons whom we've lost recently. We'll be back soon with some Alice Munro and some Henry David Thoreau. And, well, that rhymes. Who else would rhyme? Some Rimbaud? Some John O? Hera? I ran out of ideas. Which is probably a good time to stop the episode. A podcaster without ideas is like a, well... Like a... A podcaster without ideas is like a... Well, how would I know? It's never happened to me, has it? I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>